You just don't go in and say, oh, now I know this. I am now an anti-racist physician or that I will not discriminate against another gay person ever because there's so much about how we look at race, how we look at sexuality, how we look at people who are not cisgendered white males because of how we're acculturated through society that it has to become a deliberate practice. And so while we can teach a lot of the, the basics in medical school and residency, what we really are thinking about is getting physicians to critically think about how do they actually have mindful practice associated with gender and really getting people to understand that the reason that you have to be deliberate in your practice is because if you're not careful, you end up relying back on stereotypes. Because the stereotypes, they're shortcuts, but they're shortcuts that lead to bad care. I'm JT Tolentino, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to JT Tolentillo, an associate professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Miami. JT is also one of Raman's sister's friends. Not a marketer. <laughs> not a marketer. He's, he's not a marketer. He's a doctor. And we've been told that we've been talking to too many marketers. So it was good to have him on the show. I liked how he really dug into his own personal experiences and told some really great stories about his experience as an Asian gay doctor. Yeah. And it's just like, we talked about like parents' expectations, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that's something all of us, whether you're gay, straight, Asian, black or white, we all live with our parents' expectations and measuring up to them and meeting them and not meeting them. And then, you know, as we went further into his career, it's he's teaching the next generation of doctors. And it's not just about the science and the practice, but it's literally how they're going to perceive and present themselves to other people, right? And approach minorities or gay people and kind of how he's trying to change medicine from from the bottom up as a residency teacher. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the role of a doctor or even my own perception of doctors in society, it's they're supposed to be ideally people that we can trust and that we go to in our moments of need. And, you know, with him, we touched on also how he tries to create that safe space or at least give off cues so that people of the LGBTQ community know that he's someone that can both represent them for their various needs or can really kind of empathize with what they're looking for, for, for their type, kind of care. So that was really interesting to hear as well. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, JT. JT, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. JT, I feel like you're family because you're friends of family. I know. It's <laughs> it's small world, right? But the world just gets smaller and smaller as we get to know more and more people. That's why I love it. Yeah, well, okay, so this episode is dedicated to my sister, who's always giving Sharon and I crap about having too many marketers. And I said, hey, (laughs) sister, (laughs) you're a doctor. Hook us up with some great doctor guests. And she said, have I got a guest for you? So, JT, you're 
semi-infamous. Oh God! <laughs> Here we <laughs> go. <laughs> but but I, no, I who knows real- me? <laughs> Everyone does. But I, I guess the real question is, who were you before you became the career journey? Can, can you tell us a story from your childhood? Yeah. Whenever I think of my childhood, it's it's interesting. So I grew up in. As a kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, I lived in the suburbs. My mother, like many, I guess, Asian kids, my mother was a physician. But one thing I distinctly remember when I was a kid was that my grandparents would always come from the Philippines for like six months out of the year. And I thought that was a normal thing, that your grandparents would just come in from the Philippines. And I thought everybody's grandparents came from somewhere in Asia. I was about to say, isn't that where all grandparents come from? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Delivered by a stork or something. Yeah, exactly. But I remember distinctly that my grandfather was an interesting character. And he was that guy that would that believed that all the food went to the same place. So he would he would take his dinner, his dessert, the sides, the coffee, and he would just pour it onto one plate and just mix it all together. Oh my and God. I was just like, this is what all grandparents do, right? <laughs> and my grandfather, he used to love to walk, right? And he would walk around the neighborhood. And he was so used to living in the Philippines, which was a definitely much more crowded place than Charlotte, North Carolina was. And I would distinctly remember having to sometimes drive around to look for my grandfather. And he would be at some random neighbor's yard just sitting down underneath a tree just because it was a nice tree. And I remember we couldn't explain to him enough that you just can't go to somebody's suburban lawn and sit in front of their tree because it's their property. It was such a distinct memory of my grandfather. I loved him to death. But after going to Grandparents Day, where the majority of my class were either white, some were black, but I was one of only two Asians in my entire fourth grade class that I distinctly remember, me and this kid named Yoshi. Of course, they used to call me Yoshi because I was, <laughs> I was the only other Asian. Oh, you're, you're yeah. all related, clearly. We're all related, right? And you all look alike. We all look alike, exactly. Yep. But that Grandparents Day, I had the most different grandparent, and I didn't mind it, but it was one of the first times that I really understood that I was somewhat different from that standpoint. And so I used to call in my head, I used to remember we would have Chinese dinner at home and there was Chinese dinner that was outside, which was always different than the Chinese dinner we would have at home. And those are the things I just remembered how different things were between what we did with my family and my grandparents and my extended family and what the rest of the world thought Chinese or Asian food was and Chinese and Asian as well. And it was, it was so distinct, especially living and growing up down South, very similar to Yeraman, where it was very, it was just so, it was just so different. So I have to just probe on that. What's the difference between home Chinese food and outside Chinese food? Oh, yeah. So home Chinese food included egg food, y'all. No, no, egg food, home Chinese food, that included fish with heads on it. Yeah. Ah, okay. Right? So yeah. Yeah. my mother would make this one dish with the black beans and it had a really rich sauce. It was usually with snapper and the head was on it. But when you went to an outside Chinese restaurant, there was never a head. Don't want to scare, you don't want to scare away the puckwee. Yeah, exactly. And you had poo-poo platters. And I asked my mom, can we have poo-poo platters at home? It's like, well, no. Poo-poo platters is what you get at outside Chinese restaurants. Interesting. <laughs> Code for it. That's the white people food. Yeah, Got exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the chicken tikka masala of Chinese food. <laughs> so interesting. So yeah. as someone who grew up in and around Chinatown, fish was always served with heads and tails on JT. Yeah. I, mean, I know outside for us, right? So it's like because you grew up in a in a place where, yeah, there was Chinese food for white people. It's completely different. Yeah. 
It's totally so different. And I still, so I really still crave a lot of the non, the Americanized Chinese foods because <laughs> the I junk grew up food with version. It. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember going back home to the Philippines and saying, Can I have Mongolian beef? And they stared at me and like, There's no Mongolian beef at this Chinese restaurant. I'm like, But that's what you get at all Chinese restaurants. You get Mongolian be- <laughs> beef and a poopy platter. You're whiter than me, JT. This is I so know. funny. <laughs> because that's, but when we're in the Philippines, we would go out to dinner. So I was like, oh, this is outside Chinese food. So I'm going to order what I normally get from outside Chinese food, which is chicken lo mein or beef lo mein, right. or Mongolian beef <laughs> and orange chicken. And there's none of that. And we're like, what's going on? <laughs> well, so I got to ask this question with a lot of different like stuff loaded into it. When someone asks you, where are you from, both in the offensive and in the non-offensive way, how do you, how do you answer that? So I usually, so I've refined how I, how I, how I respond to that over the many decades of life I've lived, um, I guess. And initially I took offense, right? It's like, where am I from? Well, I'll tell you where you're from. No, but the way I see it now, the way I kind of approach it now is I usually help correct them with the right language. So I used to say, do you mean where does my ancestry come from? Or are you asking me where I was actually born? Because what I have found is that the more you push back, you've lost a teaching opportunity for those who either don't have the language or don't recognize the difference between what they're trying to say versus what they really are, what they really want to get out of that conversation. And so are you answering a question with a question? Because you didn't yeah. answer the question. Where yeah. are you from? Yeah. So what's the answer, JT? Where are you from? So where am I from? I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. And second, second question. No, where are you really from? Who am I really from? So I am really from, so I'm Filipino Chinese. So, but I was, my family is from the Philippines. They're from the Philippines. Yeah. And just because of the stories of your grandpa, did you ever go back as a kid or were you like me? I went to India 6, 23 and 28. Those were my years, right? I didn't spend a lot of time going back as a kid. And whereas a lot of Indian kids went back like every summer and stayed three months with grandma and grandpa, right? Like what was your experience with the Philippines and your Chinese family back there? So I went back when I was 10 or 10 or 11 and then went back when I was 21. And I haven't been back since then. My sister's actually been back. She actually goes back almost every year on a mission trip. Mine is a pandemic, which kind of threw things off. She actually was in the Philippines the February before the pandemic hit. So she was the latest one in our family to go back. But, you know, going back home to the Philippines wasn't the thing that we did very often. Many other family members did it more frequently than we did, but I I never went back that often. And it, it was interesting because my grandparents came, I guess there wasn't that sense that the impetus for us to go back since my grandparents would always come to us. So it wasn't something that my parents were ur- like really urging to us for us to go back to the Philippines on a regular basis. But I don't know. I've always wondered about that, how much that would have shaped me or not shaped me. Because I grew up a very suburban American type of childhood, whereas I know I have friends who would spend one to two months back in their home country over the summer. And actually, one of my good friends who was Sri Lankan, who grew up with me, she would regularly spend one to two months and she had a whole set of friends back in Sri Lanka. And I thought, that's so fascinating. Like you have a whole set of friends that you know, that helps keep you acculturated to who you are that I've never had. Yeah. Were you an only child growing up or did you have siblings and, and maybe even cousins around you? 
So I had a sister. I had my cousins who grew up around me. And actually, we actually had several sets of cousins that would come through and stay with us for a little bit as they immigrated to the United States. My mother and my father would always sponsor the family members and what have you. So we we always had that exposure. And even to this day, I'm very close to a lot of my cousins and what have you. I've always seen them in the context of being Filipino in the United States, whether they're brand new to the United States or whether they've been here for a long period of time versus seeing what it means to be Filipino in the Philippines, aside for those two visits I had back home. Yeah. Where in the Philippines is, is your Chinese family from? So my Chinese family, they settled in Pangasinan, in the Gupan City, the province of Pangasinan. And my father, who's the Filipino side, he's from Batangas City in Batangas. So to kind of shift gears a little bit to growing up in the States, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, (laughs) so it's funny. Growing up, I've always, I guess, groomed by my parents that I was going to go into medicine no matter what. I was going to be a physician. My mother mother and father was like, you're going to be a doctor. My dad took me to golf lessons because he's like, well, when you're a doctor, you have to know how to play golf. It's like, well, why? It's like, well, you have to have your tea time on Thursday mornings. That's what you do when you're a doctor. So, <laughs> so I, I, I was taking golf lessons when I was 11 or 12. But I remember when I was growing up, I used to love the weather, right? I was this huge meteorology fan. And I also loved journalism for some reason. And I remember one day distinctly coming down the stairs telling my dad, hey, dad, I think I want to become a journalist. And he's like, no, go back upstairs. <laughs> go back upstairs. <laughs> I don't want to hear it, JT. <laughs> like none of those dreams no 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 you're gonna go you're gonna become a doctor nice try (laughs) and then you became one yeah I know I became one I did the traditional pathway I did I went to college did well in college went into medical school immediately after that went straight into residency now I'm a a practicing physician. And I I feel like the typical carbon copy of a lot of (laughs) Asian physicians. You did. My mom my mom is listening and she's very proud of you right now because <laughs> it's like you did everything right. Checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. Well, but I guess I'm gonna ask a sort of not ignorant question, but leading ignorant question. Indian and Chinese people, that is a stereotype. Is become a doctor a Filipino stereotype, but you're Chinese Filipinos? It's like I don't know, because I don't meet as many Filipino doctors, right? You meet, how did that play out? Or were your parents like, no, we're Chinese? Did they acculturate within Chinese society or with Chinese American stereotypes and not Filipino American stereotypes because of that ethnic heritage? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question because like, so my mother's Chinese, my father's Filipino, right? So my mother is is Chinese by, I guess, background, but born in the Philippines, kind of like any other Chinese American. And I, and it's funny, I have to explain this to people when they're, because it's not Chinese American, it's Chinese Filipino, but it's the same, it's the same phenomenon we have here. So she was, her, my grandparents immigrated from China back in the 1940s, 1950s, and came to the Philippines and settled there. So they're technically Chinese Filipino. So my mother grew up in the Philippines from that standpoint. And my father was can trace his heritage or his past through the Philippines and he and is, I guess, quote unquote, technically Filipino from that standpoint. But I guess to your question, yeah, the typical stereotype is that is our Filipino nurses and Chinese doctors, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so 
But it's interesting. If you even look at like certain, some medical schools considered Filipinos an underrepresented minority in medicine because there are so, there are, there are so few Filipino physicians compared to other Asian ethnicities that you don't see the same representation as opposed to Korean or Chinese or Japanese physicians in the United States. And so, so what would you say as you were growing up then? I mean, there were only two Asian kids, you and Yoshi. <laughs> I'm guessing was Yoshi had to be Japanese. Guess, am I right? Yes, Yoshi uh, was a Japanese exchange student. So, <laughs> oh, he was an exchange student. He, was he exchange wasn't even student. there full time. Oh my goodness. Mm-mm. So I was really literally alone. the only, I guess, Asian American born person in my entire fourth grade class. I just remember fourth grade for sneakily for some reason. But yeah, fourth grade class. And it was interesting because I remember growing up with all these random stereotypes. I remember this one kid came up to me one day and said, hey, JT, can can you do a karate kick? I'm like, well, in my head, I'm like, I, I don't know any karate. So I'm just going to kick my knee, my leg up in the air and see what happens. And I did it. And I remember this guy's like, yo, man, you're like Jackie Chan or whatever. That's amazing. I'm like, I just kicked my, my leg in the air. Which, but, you take, but you took whatever you can, right? Yeah, kind of you know, yeah. yeah, I gave me some street cred <laughs> in this <laughs> At the school. <laughs> so JT, you are the model modern minority by being the Asian doctor. Who um, can do karate. Who can, who can do, do karate. karate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all these all these special talents of yours. And I'm kind of saying this tongue in cheek, but you also have another modern minority angle worth exploring, which is being gay and Asian. So totally, totally not meaning that at all. <laughs> when did you come out and what was that experience like? How did you know? When did you tell your parents? Yeah. So I would say that my my journey was, was probably a very long journey. I probably knew all throughout high school. In fact, I, I did know through high school. I you would date a few girls here and there, but nothing that really came to fruition. Went to college and I was like, you know, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to become a physician. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, and it's funny how these these conceptions are so ingrained in you that you're going to be a physician, you're going to work really hard, you're going to get married, you're going to have a wonderful wife, you know, three kids, a dog, you live in the suburbs, your golf membership, all that kind of stuff. That's like <laughs> the golf all laid out for that's you. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thursday morning, tea time, tea you know, time. all those things, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. And so I distinctly remember as these feelings came through, it's like they were really, they were still very strange to me. And, and it seems like it was this looming, but there's such a strong drive to still maintain this harmony of your of your parents' dream for you through college that you're willing to suppress a lot of this. And looking back, it feels very naive, but back then it felt like a very real thing that I had to do. I was the oldest child. I was the male oldest child in, in my my mother's family, or in the family, and my parents like, you're going to go on, you're going to have a wonderful wife, kids, all that kind of stuff. And that was the expectation. So it took me a long time to first come out. And so I really didn't start telling close friends probably till my mid-20s. And I didn't actually come out to my parents till my early 30s, which is, which is really late. But it was probably Why? over the timing. So, I mean, because by the time you're in your 30s, you're already established professionally, you're independent. What was the what was the reticence? What was the hesitation for almost 10 years? So I think part of it is is to part of it is a little bit of fear, right? Because you don't want to upset your parents. Your parents had this particular dream of you and you're like, I'm going to destroy it all right now by telling you this one thing. Ta-da. But the, I guess the other part of it, it was the sense of if I did everything else right, right? That, you know, I hit every other checkbox on the 
the model modern minority, then this one thing won't be as bad, right? This one thing about being gay won't be as painful or that, or I can just prove that, like, listen, I have all these other accomplishments. So this is just the one thing that isn't going to happen. But look, I'm a doctor. I did it by 30. I'm an associate professor by 35. That's amazing. So I'm gay. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) So I contrast what was in your head. And I'll bring our mutual friend, my sister, into this who's not gay, but brought home a black man. And she had this fear of disownership, literally, right? But even though she had checked all the boxes, done all the other things in their expectations. And I remember when we as a family had that conversation, my parents were like, what are you talking about? (laughs) We have issues, we have questions, but we're not going to disown you. And so I guess, what was the contrast in the reaction? What was the difference between your expectations of what was going to happen and what actually happened? So actually, it's interesting. Some expectations were met, some expectations weren't met, right? So the first thing I thought was they're going to they're going to kick me out, disown me, and say they never had a son, <laughs> and that didn't. Which happen. is which is, but but it's happened, so it's not unrealistic to think that. Yeah. No, I have friends who came out to their parents, Asian friends, and still to this day, their father doesn't speak to them directly, or those types of situations. And I'm thankfully I don't have that, right? And I think one of the things that I did expect is that my parents and now my mother are they're still really struggling with it and still in terms of they see they see their son they see their son's dreams but they still don't quite get the gay part right that I'm not going to come home with a wife I'm not going to come home getting married in the traditional in the traditional fashion but what if you brought home a nice Chinese Filipino boy would they be okay with that <laughs> I know. I'm just trying to find that right, perfect man. Where is he? Yeah, find the perfect guy. Make sure he's a doctor too who plays yes. golf. Doctor plays golf, makes 400, 500K a year. I'll, I'll be set. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I thought about that. But I think that it's still really tough to wrap their head around it. I remember one time my mom came up to me and says, Jonathan, I'm okay that, that you'll never have kids. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I can have kids, mom's like, no, 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 you will never have kids. Oh, I don't think you quite get what how this works, but <laughs> I'm too tired to explain it. So, okay. <laughs> but I think this is, it's funny because my mother's a physician. She's very well educated. She understands all the nuances. But I think that those decades of acculturation, those decades of expectations, and just the emotional connection that you have with certain expectations of your children, it's still really hard to kind of break that apart. And I understand from my parents' standpoint, because this wasn't what they had expected. They didn't grow up in an overliberal society like we have here in the United States and many parts of the United States. And I think this is the part that they're really still struggling with. And even when my father, my father passed away about six years ago, I think he was still struggling with it when he when he passed away. And so I don't expect my parents or my mother to 100% feel comfortable yet. But I think this is one where I'm willing to be as patient with the process as possible. Sure. Have you introduced her to anybody that you've dated? Once. That did not go well. No. <laughs> how, how many years has it been <laughs> since you came out to your parents? It's been about, I want to say, eight, nine years. Yeah. Because it's like when my sister and I both around the same time, we would talk to each other, we would bring home non-Indian people and arguments and discussions would ensue. 
but our counter argument that didn't always win the argument, but got a little bit of understanding and empathy from our parents was, well, you brought us here. Come on. Indian people aren't falling off the trees here in Alabama. And this is where I find myself not being able to relate to your predicament. And not in a like I'm learning is you can't use that argument about being gay because you can't. Well, you brought me here. Well, America's not a more gay or less gay place. And you made the comment that oh well we're a more open society yeah but just barely like we've got maybe a 20 year head start (laughs) on asia (laughs) right Right. and so i don't know it's just i know or even as i as i think about patience as well so i've i married a black guy and you can imagine jt bringing home a black guy as a chinese girl same thing right like same thing like oh my god go back upstairs Like, Same reaction. Not, like, like not we're not having this. And he's an um, actor. And he's an actor, right? So it's not even, oh, he's a doctor, a lawyer, whatever you, you wanted your Asian son-in-law to be. Right. And <laughs> it wasn't until after we had children that my mom kind of came around and really, now she's totally on board. There's no question. But something had to shift in a major way in order for the mindset to also fully, fully shift. I mean, she was always nice to him. It's not like, you know, I'm making it sound worse than it was, but... And so I wonder for you, yes, there's patience, but it's also, is it her seeing how happy you are with your new love, wherever he may be? Is that going to shift it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting because my sister and I, we always have this this constant battle about when to introduce our significant other to when, our when do, you, when do you bring them home? Yeah. Yes, yeah. because you have to almost feel it out. And whenever there's a little bit of controversy associated with, with it, whether it's a, whether of a different race or even like job, that's, <laughs> that's the mm-hmm. other one, right? <laughs> yep. It's funny because, and I think you probably, many of us feel the same way, that we're very deliberate about it. I used to always find it fascinating when white friends or whatever bring their, their boyfriends over after the first or second date to see the parents. I'm like, that's really soon. Well, this is crazy. But I think, though, you're right. The patience is hard. You almost need, you always need to think about that you're not going to change their minds quickly, but that there's something that, that you have to be okay with when you're going into this relationship or when, for me, any relationship, right. And that you're going to have to get through the discomfort initially before you, before you get to the comfort and just really showing that this is just a normal relationship. This is just um, what, this is what any two consenting loving adults would do as a boyfriend, 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 girlfriend, or, or what have you. But I think for a lot of us in, I don't want to speak for anybody on in this conversation, but there's still so much of that, I guess, cultural emotional baggage that still keeps us from doing it as quickly as we as we say we can do it. And I think that's where, for me, I find myself still hesitating, even though you've, you've been with somebody for a long period of time, or even though it's somebody that you care about and that you want to introduce to the rest of the family. And I think that is a real situation that a lot of us have, whether you're gay or straight or what have you, whenever you're trying to bring this sense of newness into a, a situation with, with your parents that are just not used to that. But I want to push back to defend our Asian upbringing. I think American kids bring people home too fast. I have, I jokingly call it comic book morality. It could be I just wasn't cool, so couldn't get the girls. But it's like, I want to go on, I make my move on the 12th date. And so if I make my move on the 12th date, after that, the amount of time it takes to bring a girl home or a guy home or whatever, it's kind of like, you've got to pass a lot of thresholds before I'm comfortable letting you in versus the example you use, JT, of like your quote unquote American friends who would bring someone home 
after one date. I don't know. I do think a little bit more vetting happens with my daughter at some point when she's dating boys or girls. Don't bring the trash home. I don't have time <laughs> to meet the trash. <laughs> do, do some vetting. Use good judgment. And you know your parents have high standards for you because of how much you need to respect yourself. So I don't want to see the clowns. And I watch American TV and I see like, <laughs> I sound like an old man, oh, American TV. But how fast <laughs> the girls and the boys are bringing someone home. Like, come on. Oh, I know. It's funny because it always goes back to my father used to always say, listen, I am not your best friend. I'm not even your friend. I'm your father. <laughs> so don't treat me like your best friend. And so, of course, I'm going to be a little bit more strict. Of course, I'm going to be a lot more discerning. And of course, I'm going to tell you things that you're not going to like. But that's what I'm a parent. I'm not your best friend. You don't call me by your, my first name, all that kind of stuff. And and I think it's funny. We always talk about the cultural phenomena of the tiger mom and all that kind of stuff. And even the hierarchy that exists within a lot of the family, family structures in a lot of Asian households, for good or for bad. But at the same time, what it does do to some extent is it but does provide some of those structures that we all need to some extent. And I think Kind of, kind of to your point, Robin, about you need to vet things. You need to make sure that, that, that you're not just jumping into a relationship and potentially putting yourself in a situation that's going to be more painful than actually of great benefit or helpful for you. Well, I think if you do, on my other podcast, I interview like these really old tech exe- or uh, business executives. And some of them said, again, these are people in their 60s, 70s, retired from a long career where they now have friendships with their children. And I think if you do your job right with the hierarchy with the making the hard decisions, not being the friend, as your children rise into adults, and my only my real goal is to make sure my kid isn't an asshole, right? When right. <laughs> I'm being serious because then you will be a great member of society. And as you are an adult, look, and I'm realizing being a parent now, and my parents are older, but and it, there's a more friendly relationship now that I've crossed all these thresholds. And I've checked some boxes the way they wanted me to, and I've made my own decisions and had to live and work through those, right? There's more of a, the still respect is definitely more one-sided, but there is more of a mutual respect, I guess, between adults. Yeah, no, I totally get that. But it's interesting because that entire melding or that entire process of going from this this true hierarchy to that friendship i think that's what we we all want from our from our parents right that we've garnered their respect as adults from them that they see as almost as not as equals but that that we are true friends from that standpoint i totally get that well because we're we're carrying the family on right as the adults the adults in the world you as a doctor Sharon as a business leader you're representing the family to the world now they're not. No, so it's true. Hopefully they do have some respect for who you are and what you do. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope, right? <laughs> 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 well, I mean, I've, I've looked at your resume. I mean, you're doing – what's interesting is the work you do, not just with the LGBTQ plus community, but also looking at Latinx and Asian communities and internal medicine and PEDS. You're focusing on the, the, goo, the do-good nature of your field, of your practice. Can you talk a little bit more about why? Wouldn't it just be easy to like bill a bunch of hours, make a bunch of money, blah, 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 blah? Yeah. <laughs> People always ask about why you end up going down one pathway in your career over another. And I think this is one where there isn't one simple answer, but that it has been a journey for me as as a physician or as a, as a human being. And we all go into medicine, we all go into these fields where 
there's a huge service component because we want to help people in some way, right? And I, you know, started in college for me. I worked at all these free clinics. I did all this volunteer work, all that type of, all those type of things. And what I, I guess, what I really recognized was that there are people who really care about their own health. They really care about the community, and that as a physician, you can play this special role within that community, even if you're not part of their community, to assure that everybody has a true fair chance in life. Because that's all we want, right? We don't we we didn't come into the world thinking that I'm going to I'm going to have this terrible life with all these things working against me because that's the way it should be or that's the way it's going to be. And that everybody needs a fair chance, even though the system isn't set up for a fair chance. Our ultimate goal, I was thinking about how do you achieve perfection in society or how do you how do you achieve the most out of society is you always think about what can you do to get people closer to that sense of fairness, to the sense that they have a fair chance at having a wonderful life. And as a physician, that's kind of where I see my role is, is to kind of help with that process for as many people as possible. And how people do that, it's different, right? So some people take it from the route of, individual patients. Some people take it from the route of working at it from the very top from policy standpoint. I see it as the most impact I can have beyond being a policy policymaker is to affect the lives or affect the education and the eventual careers of those who are in training. Because how you train will dictate how you'll practice for the rest of your life. And so if you train within the context that you as a physician can serve as a leader to help the most marginalized, the most disenfranchised in society, and really make the best, the, the most difference as much as possible, then you're going to be able to do that as a resident, as a physician, as a leader, and as a residency director, as somebody who teaches physicians and who teaches medical students, I can see I can do the most good by teaching the most out there about a lot of these practices and a lot of a lot of these concepts. Well, are you saying it's like empathy, right? Or do these things not exist in the system of teaching and training the next generation of physicians? Or is it overlooked? You just assume everyone's got the empathy button. We just need to train them on the science. That's a good question. I think everybody has some level of empathy. The question is, who do they have empathy for? And or is it the question of, is empathy beat it out, beaten out of them <laughs> through the entire educational process <laughs> of how we train physicians? Or is it about really helping physicians understand where, how inequities actually lead to problems for everyone? Because I think as most humans are, it's very hard to see downstream effects as a human being, right? And so these are actual knowledge areas and skill sets that have to be taught and have to be shown. You just can't assume that everybody just knows that there are inequities. You just, people just don't know about how certain groups are disenfranchised over other groups. And those are, those are things that have to be deliberately taught in medical school and residency. And somebody has to do that teaching. It just doesn't appear somewhere. And so, and that's where that in order for you to actually develop some of the empathy for these groups, you have to actually teach that. You have to actually show that not everybody has been exposed to this and not everybody has had a true authentic experience working with these populations. And so that's where that's where our training has to be able to really direct 
students and residents and what have you to really understand where the why these skill sets are important where and how that builds into your overall future as a physician or as a human being. And JT, you're in the classroom and you're training people to be out there and implementing best practices. What are some things that you're teaching to help correct some of the issues that you're spotting? So I think one of the things that we don't do a great job of in medicine that we're getting better at now is really understanding what does race mean whenever we talk about disparities in the Black communities, disparities in Asian American communities and what have you. Because how we've used race has never really, to some extent, it doesn't have any true biologic underpinning, but that what really is going on is some is a lot of the socioeconomic forces that are associated with racism against certain groups. So for example, if you take a black American who goes out and ends up with some kind of cardiovascular event or a heart attack or a stroke or something that affects the heart, was there risk there because they're black or is there risk there because they didn't have access to the same level of care or they were subject to racism where they had physicians that, were, that weren't screening appropriately for certain disease factors or making gross assumptions about who they were or how they practiced or how they, or how they ate or how they lived their lives. And that's the reason that those risks are actually increased for this black American as opposed to somebody who was white American. And I think I think it's a real reckoning for us in American medicine to really understand how much of medicine when it comes to race really deals with biological constructs versus more social constructs. And a lot of times people always ask, well, as an Asian American physician, why are you talking about the social constructs associated with black Americans in medicine? And a lot of that really comes with underpinning that racism has been most stark against black Americans. However, those same racial underpinnings also affects Asian Americans, Latinx Americans, and every other group of color in the United States, because it's all based upon that same sense of racism and how racism interplays with how medicine is delivered and how we also study medicine. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> that was a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is, is, is the theory then by teaching it, it's almost like nipping it in the bud because the racism occurs in the practice of medicine, to your point that black person not getting screened correctly, maybe on their first appointment, right? Because assumptions are made. But if new young doctors come at it from a more holistic understanding, then you can almost stop some of the root causes, at least from the clinician standpoint. Yes, I think it's, I wouldn't say it stamps it out. Because it sure, starts the conversation. Reduces, reduces it. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. reduces it because this entire practice is a very deliberate practice, right? You just don't go in and say, oh, now I know this. I am now an anti-racist physician <laughs> or that I will not discriminate against another gay person ever because there's so much about how we look at race, how we look at sexuality, how we look at people who are not cisgendered white males because of how we're acculturated through society that it has to become a deliberate practice. And so while we can teach a lot of the basics the, the basics of regarding that in medical school and residency, what we really are thinking about is getting physicians to critically think about how they actually approach it into the future and how do they actually have mindful practice associated with gender. I mean, I think one of the greatest ones, going back to a little bit of my own personal story, is most people, when you when they first meet me, they're like, I didn't know you were gay. It's like, well, yes, because your conception of a gay man is a flamboyant gay man who wears sequins 
colors, all that kind of stuff all the time that works down at the drag bar or works out all the time and does all the kind of stuff. I don't know how you conceptualize a gay man, but apparently I'm not that person. And I think really getting people to understand that the reason that you have to be deliberate in your practice is because if you're not careful about being deliberate, you end up relying back on stereotypes because the stereotypes, they're shortcuts, but they're shortcuts that lead to bad care. And stereotypes propagate themselves the the more we practice them. Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes I have to tell people, listen, I am really gay. Trust me. (laughs) I know this. (laughs) So we usually ask a question about fitting in. And actually for you, I want to flip that a little bit. I'm wondering if patients come to you to reveal things about themselves because they do, they can connect with you on a much deeper way. And so specifically, my husband and I were talking about doctors recently and how he's trying to find somebody who's literally either similar in age to him or similar in terms of racial background and composition as him to be the one who's looking after his physical care because he feels as if a black male doctor would have just a lot more personal reference to some of either the ailments or just his own his own health and wellness. And I'm wondering if people if your patients ever respond to you a certain way because you are a gay Asian doctor, either positively or negatively? So I would say in general, it's been very positive. So I've had a number of patients who've actually sought me out because they knew that I was a gay physician or they knew that I provided LGBTQ friendly care. One of the things that I did very deliberately was when I opened up my practice through the medical school that I try to advertise or I try to tell those who work in marketing or what have you that I want to work with the LGBTQ community and that I have a particular penchant for medicine associated with that particular community. And I've had so many stories where patients have come to me and said, listen, I couldn't find a doctor who would even care about what we're, what I'm doing when I asked them for, for example, PrEP, the preventative medication um, to prevent HIV, that they just said, told me to stop having sex with men. And that's that was the only advice. And they refused to give me the medication, which could potentially spread the, on the HIV infection. And it's just heartbreaking. And so many patients feel very comfortable coming just because one, I'm, even if they didn't know that I was gay, that they knew that I was one who really understood the the medical needs of the LGBTQ community. And this is the reason that, that many LGBTQ youth, many LGBTQ patients may or may not feel comfortable just seeing a regular physician because of some of the backlash they'll get just for asking for, which is normal routine care. It's frustrating. It's very frustrating to me. A lot of doctors in the LGBTQ community leave little hints with little rainbow pins and what have you on their coat or on their badge to really show that they're that they're friendly. I, I try to I try to maintain try to ask about pronouns to assure that they understand that that I want to make sure that I'm calling everybody as they want to be called. And that more importantly that I'm not I don't want to single anybody out because it's for so long in medicine. That's that's what we've done. We just keep singling out certain groups unless you fit a certain mold. And that's really, really frustrating. Is it as simple as that? Is it you ask a few questions, you have the rainbow pin or card on your desk so a patient just can know? Or do you have to be more overt about it for when, 
I think about like, I'm literally in the middle of trying to book an Airbnb for a vacation, right? Is a house kid friendly? Do you put that on your ZocDoc account or your LinkedIn <laughs> profile or something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, I personally do. I mean, it's, it's even in my, you mentioned LinkedIn, in my LinkedIn profile, I mentioned that that I'm passionate about LGBTQ care and I put myself out there on the different websites focused on LGBTQ medicine. And I think for many of us that work with the LGBTQ community, that's, I think that's such an important part is being able to identify practices that are not only going to be friendly, but are going to provide really good evidence-based care. Because I think it's, I think it is still hard, even in certain, especially in certain parts of the country. I mean, don't even get me started on transgender care. That's, <laughs> that's even more difficult to get for a lot of, for a lot of patients out there. If you could give yourself, your younger self, the kid who wanted to be a journalist who went back up to his room, who's <laughs> 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 hanging out with Yoshi all the time. His friends call him Yoshi. What would you tell that young man? I would tell him that it's going to be okay that all your fears about how you think people are going to react are always going to be much more blown out of proportion than you think they're going to be. But your decisions to tell people information is something that's going to be a lot more deliberate than you think it's going to be. And that's okay. Everybody always says that, oh, I wish I told people sooner. I wish I told people sooner. But for me, when I think about it, I think information comes out at the right time for the right person sometimes. And for me, I don't know if knowing who I am, if it would have come out any sooner or any faster, would have been any less painful or any more painful than, than it has. I do wish I had more courage for that. When, and if I were to tell my younger self that sensation of being brave and being okay with being, being yourself, that you're not going to feel that way, but you have a lot more of that than, than you actually do. I think those are the things that even today, I think about it all the time. Should I have come out in, when I was in middle school or high school when I first knew? And I don't know, I feel like I'm rambling because this is such a hard question for me because I don't know how differently my the, my life trajectory would have been if I would have said it sooner. But I I think the one thing I wish I would have told my my, my younger self was to not let the anxiety get to me in regards to giving out that information? I don't know if it's the right answer, but it's the answer. <laughs> it's, a truthful, it's a truthful answer, right? So that is yeah. the right answer. Yeah. But that's a great well, question. Oh, I want to think about it. <laughs> think about it some more. It's just a, you, can't really, you, can't really, you can't really do much with it, to be clear. <laughs> Unless we invent it's time just, travel. Right. I know. So if you can literally for, go back and like... But then you'd be wrecking the space-time continuum and that's a whole thing. You oh, know, I know. And... I know. And then everybody's like, oh, but then what if the dinosaurs come back because of you? It's like, well, that's, <laughs> then it'll just make Jurassic Park that much more real. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's funny. People always say you should live with, you should live without regrets, right? And I try to live without regrets. Yeah, those are possible. lucky people. <laughs> they are lucky people. Yeah, screw, screw those guys. And what I would rather be is I'd rather live I want to live with more confidence in the, in the decisions, right? So regrets, I find that my regrets come from where I just lack that confidence and the decision I just made, right? So I regret that I didn't have more confidence in it. But it propels you to make a different choice later. You won't make that same mistake because you have that. Re- I think regrets are valuable for that reason. Yeah, but I, I think regrets are okay because that's a human reaction. If you didn't live without regrets, then who are you? You're like a robot. Robot you're makes so, decisions no, all the time. Soci- you're a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I regret leaving my dog at home. 
And so <laughs> that's like an everyday thing for me. So I guess I guess I've completely missed that <laughs> missed that boat. That's funny. So we've JT, we've covered so much and you've answered all of our questions truthfully, whether or not it seems like the right answer. <laughs> Unlike all those marketing guests we normally have. Yeah. So thankfully doctors doctors do know the right answers most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. And now we'd love to move to speed round. Are you ready for our speed round, JT? I am ready. Let's do this. Awesome. What's one thing about you that no one expects? That I love karaoke. What's your go-to song? Endless Love. Oh, you're such a romantic. <laughs> but the funny part, I'm not a romantic, but I love that song. <laughs> it's so good. Every karaoke. I'll sing it by myself. I'll do both parts. I don't mind. <laughs> what is a book or a movie or even a TV show that has characters that you relate to? Oh, I messed up speed round because I'm, now I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> it's really just, it's bad marketing. Speed round I know. forever. <laughs> so I will tell you, it's not a movie or, or a book. It's actually a TV show. I love Scrubs and I relate to Scrubs. So all my doctor friends say that's the most accurate doctor show out there. Is that true? It is the most accurate doctor show out there. Nice. Because well, we think we're all funny, but we're not. But <laughs> well, who do you relate to most on Scrubs? So almost every physician says they relate to JD because he's the one with the inner monologue and the anxieties associated with being being a resident physician. But I have to say JD because his name is very close to mine. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite mom food? Mom food, like food that my mom cooks, like a, a mom yeah. dish. Yeah, your, your, your favorite mom dish. So it's this one Filipino dish called kirikiri, which is basically oxtails in a peanut butter sauce. So oh, good. I just had that the other night. I did it's, takeout. It is so good. But my my mom, she makes it with this, she makes it with peanut butter and it's so good because she puts a lot of peanut butter in it. <laughs> so and then I had shrimp paste for the first time recently. Oh that yeah. Also, Bagong, so good. It is very good with how do you say it again? Bagoong? No, no. I call it kari kari, which obviously is not pronounced correctly. Oh, kitty kitty? Kitty kitty. Yeah. Very yummy. Fun fact. So one of my wife's close work friends is Filipino, and every once in a while she brings over lumpiao. And my daughter, it is the top of the food chain for my daughter. Lumpiao is the best for her. It's clutch. The Filipino egg rolls are the best. What is your least favorite food? My least favorite food is... Oh, God, because I love so many foods. It's, oh, shoot. Be careful with your answer. This is where you lose friendships. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay, so there's this one. I don't like bugs. So my cousin sometimes, when I used to live with my cousin in New York, he would he would sometimes make a bug dish. You can get the, the bugs. Okay, what? what? <laughs> I feel like this is too obvious of a no. Come on, everyone's gonna say no to bugs. No, he loves it. Like he'll stir fry it, and he'll and and he'll put and he put All vegetables. Kind of in. My mom, my mom grew up eating grasshoppers in Africa, so yeah. No, no, it's not grasshoppers. though. it's some other kind of bug, but it just doesn't taste great to me. I just don't. Yeah, like no, it. but come on, give me something you can veto. You're at yeah. a restaurant with all your friends, or you're on a date. Come on, what's your veto food that you can get out of because you just hate it? Oh, okay, hard boiled eggs. Hard boiled I mean, eggs. What do you have? Yes. Yeah, there's something about cooked yolk. They smell like it, farts. No, it's not. It's not that. It's the. <laughs> I don't like how the yolk gets all grainy in your mouth, and it tastes like you just ate like a bunch of chalk dust and said that was delicious. I mean, it's oh, like yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. it's like, why would you do this? Well, you Either. clearly aren't using enough salt and pepper. Jeez. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> or soy sauce, which is what I do with hard-boiled eggs. Yeah, but if the egg yolk is like that really runny egg yolk, oh, so good. You put that over like anything, ugh. Oh. That's heaven. Oh, so soft boiled eggs are fine. It's just, it's just literally the hard boiled. It's, I get yes. it. Yeah, I yes. get it. Especially okay. when people eat that for breakfast. It's like, I'm just going to eat hard boiled eggs for breakfast. I'm like, once really? or twice a week, JT. Once or twice oh a week. Oh my God. I'm just like, there are better things to eat. I mean, I can, I can scoop up a piece of grass off the floor and, and call that your breakfast. Fighting words. Fighting words. <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? So, right now, right now, it would be Dr. Anthony Fauci because I think it's very fascinating what, oh, what he's yeah. going through. Not the medicine part, but just everything else about his life because he's, he's done so much. Yeah, yeah. He's been politicized, but he's just an absolute fascinating physician. I'm more interested, not so much the medicine and all the stuff that he's talking about. I'm more interested in about everything else he does outside of there. Because one of the things that abs- I love talking about to physicians or to people who are really quote unquote famous or have done really great things is what their normal life is like and what their day to day life is like. That's what I want to know. I don't want to know about the stuff that makes them a celebrity because that's the stuff we all know. I want to know the interesting things, kind of like what this podcast is, the interesting things about their lives that they think is fascinating that is outside of their, out of their work, basically. One yeah. thing he does outside of his work is he does a lot of podcasts and interviews. Yes. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> so much publicity, this guy. And again, rightfully so, because he's having to sell a behavior to a bunch of idiots who don't want to listen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's funny because one of my former residents, when she was a fellow at the NIH, used to work in his lab. And I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. What is he like in real life? He's like, oh, he's really great. It's like, he's a dude. He's just a dude. dude. That's what I love. I want to get beer with a dude. And then I'll turn bright red because I still have Asian flesh. (laughs) Last question, JT. What does being a modern minority mean for you? So for me, a modern minority is about living within the context of where you came from. Now that sounds super (laughs) esoteric, but I'd like to think that I live like your typical modern life, right? I live on the 28th floor of a high rise condo in Miami beach, right? And I'm a physician. I do all these wonderful, I do all these things with residents. I'm like any other residency program director, but I do everything within a context of being the son of two immigrants from the Philippines and that so much of my decision still is still influenced by how my parents raised us and they raised us as if they were back in the Philippines. And I think that's what's so fascinating. So you always talk about family. Family's so important to us. I talk to my cousins on a regular basis. I, and so I treat my friends almost like family and how that that all interplays. Your moral compass about how you think about things are very much rooted in who we are as Filipino-Americans or Chinese-Americans from our parents and from and from those we grew up with. But then they're put into new contexts, right? So I think about moral decisions to some extent as a Filipino-American, but I make those same decisions as a gay man in America, which may seem counterintuitive, but it's really who we are. A lot of us make our decisions growing up with the knowledge and experiences we had growing up as Filipino Americans, Indian Americans, Latin Americans, or what have you. I like that. That's the I right like answer. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely the right answer. Yeah, so I'm going to make an A on this essay test. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Your parents will be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, JT, gosh. 
I am so glad my sister introduced us and we had you on. Thank you so much for joining and just kind of sharing your story and your take on everything. No, this has been fun. I really enjoyed this. We should do more of these. Every week. Next week. Sure. Yeah, next week, perhaps. <laughs> what, 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 what are you doing on uh, Monday? So, like, Tea time. Your entire show just can't be JT. <laughs> the JT show. <laughs> yeah, yes. JT has to do a little bit of golf once in a while. Iron- <laughs> that's, that's the name of the show. <laughs> JT's got to do a little bit of golf. Yes. Ironically, I haven't touched a club in over fi- almost five years. <laughs> no, it's going to be like your comedians in cars getting coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, JT. No, thank you guys so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Growing up in a small town, I didn't really think of rock and roll as like a white space or anything. There's a niche for telling these stories around the time I grew up that's not really being filled on YouTube. Rock and roll is so far reaching that it can unite people who may be politically divided or whatever, but they can form a great community over their love of music or art or whatever. What's been great about my channel is I don't try to take sides. I've covered some pretty controversial topics, but I try to just tell the story and let people decide for themselves. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.